Welcome to Texas Style Coworking. The ranch office is a neighborhood community office that delivers a warm atmosphere with a heavy dose of Southern hospitality. Located in Memorial, Katy, and Baytown, we offer private offices, conference rooms, event space, and much more. Come change things up and check us out. Remember, life is better at the ranch. Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low carbon, high energy conversation with your host, Joe Batir. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Batir. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I am here today with Brent Smith co-founder and chief communications officer of Firefly Energy Services, Firefly has developed a unique storage system called GasLoop. We all know the importance of energy storage, so I'm excited today to talk to Brent today, talking to him about their solution, how it plays into the energy landscape, and how it plays into the energy transition. So, Brent, Thank you for joining me today. If you would please share with me and the audience your background and a quick introduction to Firefly Energy Services. Yeah, of course. I, I appreciate you having me on, Joe. I've been looking forward to it. And uh, just a little bit about me getting started. Um, I have a more diverse background. Um, you know, I meet a lot of energy professionals who that's that's all they've ever done. It seems like <laughs> it, it seems like more often than not, it's it's a it's a career path someone gets on, they stay with it, and uh, and in a lot of cases, it's the only thing they've ever done. For me, it was a little bit different. Um, I started my career uh, in banking and was on a trajectory to get into the financial planning world, and that was it for me at the time. Uh, several years into that, I was doing some, I was a loan officer managing a branch uh, at a local bank here in Oklahoma City and uh, went to work with Mass Mutual Financial Group, uh, started doing some of the preliminary licensing steps, Series 6, 63, and so on. Um, kind of figured out that that wasn't for me, but it, but it wet my appetite for entrepreneurship, business development, and sales. It kind of stoked that fire within me. And I knew that's the path I wanted to be on. Uh, that that kind of took me on a on a 12 year turn into the healthcare space and in a business development and account executive type role. And, and then I was pulled by uh, one of our now partners here at Firefly into the energy space. We we had known each other for a long time, and uh, and, and we were friends that that tended to talk about business a lot. So uh, inevitably, we, we found alignment and compatibility in our skill sets. Uh, he had long talked to me about the appeal of working in the energy space, and that was kind of how I ended up here. We, we had worked together on a couple of previous ventures, kind of like private consulting type, type stuff, and I was helping him out with that uh, while, while I was on the learning curve of the energy space, so to speak. That was about 10 years ago. So I, I've got about 10 years of total experience uh, in the energy space, primarily 
midstream, uh, what I call traditional midstream. I'll probably elaborate on that a little bit later. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's kind of the primary background of our team and what led us into this gas storage solution, uh, gas loop and kind of developing that concept, but having midstream background, gas processing, pipeline construction projects, and also utility operations. Uh, so that kind of segues from my background and kind of into the broader background uh, of the team here at Firefly. Uh, the original business model was midstream. It was the primary skill set, you know, of the collective group. Um, and so that was the path that we were on. Um, uh, our, our CEO, Jeff, had, had led a, uh, a private equity-backed team for a while, not the best timing, uh, First round with private equity as a learning experience, just in terms of structure. Um, for us, it, it was really, you know, it obviously has its place, especially in a capital intensive uh, sector like Midstream. You know, the projects are very large, very capital intensive. Uh, but for us, it kind of revealed, you know, what we really wanted to be, who we really were as a company, and, and really what we wanted to be. So we, we went into Firefly. Uh, around 2018 with that midstream focus, evaluating deals. Uh, and I'll try to be mindful of the time horizon here as well, because this kind of segues into uh, the, the gas loop development. But we were evaluating projects and, you know, gas prices and, and oil prices were favorable, but, but turning less so. And so the economics of these deals were progressively getting more and more difficult to work, you know, even looking at like a blowdown deal with, you know, with the volume commitments and things like that. It just wasn't really something that could be underwritten with with private capital. So uh, parallel to that, what I again call traditional midstream business model, we were we were developing the gas loop concept, which had, had kind of come to us from a prior relationship. Uh, kind of a, a discussion among a few people uh, and it all kind of led to us and, and we kind of tasked ourselves with figuring out how to do it. <laughs> um, but I'll, I'll kind of elaborate on that a little bit, but um, the, the gas loop, the, the gas loop concept, it's basically a pipeline construction project hmm. at the end of the day. So that's, that's how it kind of led our way. A couple of conversations with a prior investor relationship. You should talk to these guys. That was us. Uh, and so we kind of dug into it. Yeah, that. so that's a exciting background. I think one of the things that you don't often get, I, I, my, from my perspective, many of the people who are starting private equity-backed companies are often engineers who know of a resource that, for some reason or other, their company did not want the company, their pri previous company did not want, or, or they wanted to move on and, and develop this thing that they thought was really capable. Whereas your background is finance and more the financial side. I think that's, that's really important, especially as we talk about energy transition, because right now there are, there are technical challenges but many people also point out the financial challenges. And so I want to get into those two different aspects. But before we get too deep, you've mentioned gas loop. It's an it's a it's a essentially a pipeline construction project. Can you go a little bit deeper on what exactly gas loop is and and how this 
you've talked about traditional midstream. How does that relate to the midstream business and what, so what is gas loop and where does it fit in midstream? Good question. Yeah. And, and I appreciate the opportunity to kind of elaborate on that. We, we did file a patent on this system as well. And I, I think it's logical to kind of make reference to that because there's the, there's the, what it isn't also. Hmm. Right. And I, th- I think at times there, there's an important distinction to make, but basically, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's an underground pipe system. It's like a parallel array. So it's horizontal and underground. So you have parallel runs of pipe. Those are adjoined by 180 degree bends, all of the uh, parameters and pipe diameter and so on uh, is site specific. Uh, it's important to note it's, it's in a customized capacity as well. And, and it's co-locational. So this is on-site storage. Um, I, I prefer the term co-locational because that can be adjacent or strategically close by. On-site, uh, it, it sounds kind of dangerous. <laughs> so I, it, essentially on-site storage, but a lot of people use those terms interchangeably. I'm good with either one. But, uh, but basically, by, by co-locating your storage asset, you, it changes the way it's commercialized as well. So what do we store? I think let's, let's kind of pivot to that first. So we're, we're looking at gases and liquids. That, that's basically what our patent is. So it's utilizing pipe infrastructure in a continuous circuit. So it's one chamber, lack of better words. So it, it's one container, one storage unit, basically, utilizing pipe infrastructure uh, our patent is for gases or liquids. We don't specify natural gas. We don't specify hydrocarbon or anything along those lines. Uh, so it's natural gas. We're looking at hydrogen products, RNG and RSG. Uh, we're not evaluating a project yet, but we're interested in how this could be utilized for CO2 capture or storage, uh, especially in a utilization scenario versus sequestration. Uh, the pipeline infrastructure would, would be would facilitate an in-use or off-take uh, scenario. Uh, so we're really interested in that as well. But the primary uh, the primary uh, use cases and project evaluations we're looking at right now are natural gas and hydrogen. And so the customer set is utilities. That was the original design several years back. That original use case was for uh, peak shaving and commodity price management. And you know, being a pipeline infrastructure project you know, th- this is a long-term asset, so cost recovery over the life of that asset, price management, especially for a utility who has a, a lengthy time forecasting horizon uh, associated with their economics. Uh, that was a natural fit from the start, and, and that, that opportunity set now has, has become more broad. So, we're, so originally looking at utilities, now we're looking at industrial parks, uh, data centers, some microgrid concepts, which we love. Um, so that, that opportunity set has definitely broadened. So, um, but again, kind of speaking to the, the what gas loop is uh, being an underground pipe array, customized capacity, it starts to sound a little bit, you know, kind of like it's all over the place, but it's, it's one consistent thing. A project evaluation is the same regardless of the type of facility or what we're storing. Uh, it just has those multiple applications. Yeah. So uh, just from a project evaluation standpoint, it's really the same. It's it's what's our available land footprint. 
you know, once we've determined, you know, we're, we're approached or, or come in contact with someone, the, the storage need is typically already known. It, it's, we're, we're not approached typically to have someone to help someone determine what their storage need is. They, they know that already. It's not mysterious or, a, or, a, or, or an uncertainty uh, in, the, in the use case, but it's what's the available land footprint and what's the desired storage capacity. They typically know that. They don't need our help. <laughs> uh, but basically from there, it's looking at pipe material, pipe diameter, uh, and compression metrics to, to basically achieve that desired capacity and storage deliverability design uh, for that specific site. So there's the that's the upside to com- to customization. Yeah. The downside is, well, what does it cost? And I'm like, well, what does what cost? Because yeah. <laughs> it can be a, a wide range in terms of the the capacities that were uh, of the different things we might yeah. be storing. Yeah. So. so it sounds it sounds pretty straightforward. It mm-hmm. this this pipe array or pipe connecting together. But yeah, as you point out, there are a lot of different ways that you can develop that. One thing that mm-hmm. that I feel like you you didn't highlight, but I think should be highlighted, the fact that you have a patent mm-hmm. because most people right. out there probably say, "Okay, you're connecting a bunch of pipe, putting gas in it." That doesn't sound like it's uh novel or new or or in any way special. So, I guess what is, if if you can share, what is the patent? Why did you go the patent route? And and what, I guess, what is that value that you see in having a patent for this? Yeah, it's a great question. And the fact that it's simple and not all that novel is one of the things I love about it the most. <laughs> um, but basically for starters, you know, if, you know, this was a little bit of a dark room for me, I, I wasn't familiar with different types of patents or that process. It's the first one I've participated in. Uh, so, so clarity on that, because we do get that question. How did you get a patent on this? Because it's existing components and things like that. Uh, it's a utility patent. So there's not something that's been invented that did not previously exist. It's basically the design function and the utilization of those components that's novel. Um, using pipe in a continuous circuit mm. in the design uh, in the design sequence that we submitted in the patent, that is what's not been duplicated or done previously. Mm-hmm. Um, as part of the process, we we received what's called patent references. It's when the patent office turns back uh, previous patents that have any type of similarity. And so then you're tasked with distinguishing yours and differentiating it from those other previous designs. So there were 21 of those in total. So basically you're tasked then with going 21 for 21 and talking through and, and demonstrating in written form to the patent office, what the, what the differences are. Um, so basically it's, you know, it's at the end of the day, the components are pipe valving control logic, all standard industry components, uh, which I love. I love it because it's simple. People with not the most technical background can easily kind of gain line of sight as to its functionality and the, in the, 
the viability of its operation. Um, but basically, it's there. There's no secret sauce at at the end of the day. Uh, but it's the co-locational aspect of it too. You know, people have used pipeline, quote unquote, for storage, quote unquote, in the past. Line pack is something with a, that a lot of people are familiar with. It's often referenced in our conversations with customers. Oh, so it's like line pack? Yes and no. The yes is that you're using pipeline infrastructure. <clears throat> Excuse me. The uh, the no is that it's co-locational. It's behind your it's behind your meter. You have ownership of this asset, and then in turn, the way it's commercialized is very very different as well. Oh, okay, yeah, that that's yeah. really interesting to think through and and recognize because what what I everything you're saying, what I hear is that it is a it is all known technology used in a new way, and and one thing that that we all love to talk about is de-risking. And making things safer yeah. and more reliable. And to me, that is this: you're taking all known components, all new, all existing idea or existing mm-hmm. pieces, and now you're putting them together in a new way, which is novel, but also not risky because it's it's all known quantities, which I think is yep. is very clever. Now I want to yeah. I want to talk through because as as you point out we we know things like line pack storage itself is is a known thing we have to store we have to have that buffer but mm-hmm. and I, and I guess through that I I'm not a midstream guy I'm a I'm subsurface so I don't necessarily know what the midstream industry really looks like in terms of this storage component. But the fact that you are out there and selling this and, and you're standing up a a business on, on co-located storage makes me think that this is different than what has been done previously. So that's a long winded way of asking how, how does the midstream market work today for something like storage and this buffering component versus what you're doing here? Yeah, that, that's a good question too. And, and when we think midstream, you know, there's a lot of things that could fit within that, but just fundamentally the, the two kind of most obvious and most relevant within this discussion would be, you know, what I call traditional midstream, which is a, you know, an agreement with a producer uh, with a volume commitment and they're producing and you're following along with their drilling schedule, for example, and, and there's an offtake and a market for produced product, basically. So these, these are your natural gas processing plants and, and the agreements associated are gathering, uh, gathering and processing agreements. And so this is kind of a fundamental standard part of the value chain. And then, and then you have what I kind of refer to as your broader midstream it's still within the midstream function per se uh, but it's more of that next step in getting gas to market and like utilities are going to be the customers or of that next broader you know through a transmission and distribution type system so you kind of have your processing and then you have your transmission and distribution 
And fundamentally, that's where you typically see the storage piece occur, especially if, if we're just thinking natural gas storage uh, per se. We could apply this to the, to the other products, you know, hydrogen or CO2 in a little bit different way. But, it, but when we're talking midstream, it's probably best to kind of focus on natural gas. Um, so basically, uh, a, a broader midstream, which would be downstream from gathering and processing, of course, uh, the, these are the folks taking ownership of gas and they have, they have storage available along their system. That's typically how you hear it referred to. And what that storage is present day and previously is geological storage, above ground tank storage, um, geological being like depleted reservoir or salt cavern. Um, and that's something to expand on in a little bit too, just kind of the changes uh, in that market space, but kind of looking specifically at midstream. So a, a utility who would be our customer, right, to, to kind of differentiate the existing storage options from what we're doing within our customer set, basically. So those, those utilities, if they have a storage need, what they are doing is through an open season process, like a bid process, an open season opens up and they're bidding on capacity within that storage system uh, to that broader midstream player. Um, and they submit a bid and we'll see what happens. <laughs> they're notified later, right? As to, and if they don't get it, you know, there, there are winners and losers in, a, in an open season bid process, right? And what it feels like to win and lose has changed a little bit too. So to, to a little bit of an analogy, but um, you know, the, the demand for storage and just the, the volatility and it's, it's very disruptive in comparison with what it used to look like, you know, present day, this is happening right now and people are looking for solutions. So gas loop would be an alternative to that bid process, the uncertainties around what's happening, what, how is our bid stacking up against the others? What happens? What kind of adjustments do we make? What are our options if we don't get granted in the bid process if we don't win that bid and so on. So you, you, they can look at their own specific storage need and apply a long-term solution that they own. And there is some com commercial flexibility with our solution as well. It's typically a direct purchase type scenario. They want to own the asset. Um, but if, if they wanted to do some type of joint venture or want us to own and operate it, we could do that as well. But typically... It's, it's a direct purchase, like a cost plus type model, put the asset in, there's some overlap with getting it up and running operationally, and then we hand over the keys and they're off and running. Okay. Yeah. So it, that makes sense in terms of the basically storage by the midstream company versus storage by the utility and who's going to be burning the gas and generating the electricity. Yeah. So the... I understand conceptually the difference there. And I think there there is still a question there though of why do we need this change? What is the what is the real value there? Which I think you were alluding to as you talked about the the geologic storage. 
but mm. and how the market is changing right now. So I guess that's the question is what what is the market doing right now for gas storage in terms of how it's changing and and what's really prompting people to want to kind of be in charge of their own gas storage. Yeah. Um to the beginning of this it, it would be there's a line in time the, the way I look at it and it's it's pre Yuri and it's post Yuri everything just kind of changed and just in case and, for those who yeah. who aren't Texans pre Yuri post Yuri that was the the big winter storm was that February of 2022 20, 21 21 yeah yep. February of 2021 big storm and was it basically almost took out our entire grid. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the way this affected other parts of the country as well, you know, there was a lot of focus on Texas and a lot of noise around that, but this, this was a far broader um, kind of a cause and effect uh, relationship with this, but it's, you know, the, the way I think about it and, and the way I talk about it is, it's almost like the language changed. Mm. It's like the storage language was different pre Yuri and and post, right? And and just to give an example of that, um, you know, the the process to obtain storage along one of these midstream systems, again through that open season process, you saw you saw relatively conservative bids with a contract length of three to five years. Uh, on the storage capacity increase dramatically uh, to max rate bids of, of 15 and 20 years, right? So this this is not a this is not a small uptick in in the market. And oh, we should we should watch this and monitor this and see how this goes. This is your hockey stick kind of uh, spike in demand because what what that winter storm really showed, and not just in Texas. Um, you know, it's the the vulnerability vulnerability of the grid w- was really exposed. You know, and that's and that's not a finger point at, at any one kind of area or uh, solution existing or otherwise. You know, it, it inevitably kind of leads there. <laughs> uh, that that's the that's the the banter that people enjoy to talk about. But when when you're in the problems and solutions you know, commercial side of this, it looks a lot different, right? And, and utilities, uh, especially their, their decision process, it, it's different. They're, they're not, they're not nimble and, and they're not expected to be, it's just different. The, the time horizon they function within is just very different. You know, we, we, it's, it's pretty fundamental to think about renewable penetration and so on. And that seems very aggressive, but it's it's not. We're not seeing it quite to the level that that it might seem, right? So, you know, especially you tie that into energy transition. You know, it's you got still you've still got people moving off of coal. We all know that, right? So, you know, what what kind of aggressive moves are we making? It's 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 interesting, but uh, but pre Yuri. Post jury, the commercialization model it it's shifted. People are looking to what are my alternatives to a max rate, you know, 15, 20 year 
bid process and that type of commitment is not easy, right? But you've got to have firm capacity. You've got to demonstrate that you can meet the demand of the customer yeah. when you're the utility, right? Yeah. So kind of kind of getting back into that. So, you know, it's there. Uh, everyone we talk to is evaluating those options and the market. I, I think we were a little ahead of it, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this storm kind of brought a lot of things a little more fast forward into the forefront. And we're just now seeing the adjustment to it kind of play out in the market. Um, again, with, with utilities and the, and the kind of time horizon they deal with, that they're not going to instantly shift. You know, they, it, yeah. you're talking about a storm that as the, at the time was referred to as, you know, every 150 years this happens. And so we kind of dismiss it as this outlier event, but extreme weather events are very, very regular. This is a, this is an annual thing. There's a real effect. There are shifts happening in the energy market and across the value chains that, that require, you know, people are modeling these events yeah now where previously they they were not and and you can see why you know because the perception broadly uh was that this was something that happens every 150 years and you know this is not something you build your entire operate we certainly didn't build a business model around it yeah. <laughs> uh but you know there there was a use case at the time that has pivoted slightly with that change in the market but i think we're just now seeing it you yeah. know so uh, that adjustments being made, uh, firm capacity penalties, uh, the penalties for basically in, in, in just the simplest of terms, if you're not able to demonstrate you have capacity to meet the demand of, of your u- utility customers, there, there are penalties for that. And it's, it's part of their evaluation process. So that, that in essence is what's clearing up uh, uh, capital to move to new infrastructure mm-hmm. solutions. So that's essentially the pivot. It's it's what can we do in terms of infrastructure instead of committed capital yeah. to a subscription model for storage and and rolling the dice every year on what's that process going to look like, yeah. what what are our options and so on. So it's just a little bit of a shakeup, yeah. but but nothing particularly mysterious, right? It's we we should be modeling and anticipating these types of events, especially if there's going to be a shift and transition uh, with a different resource mix. It, it's a constant evaluation and, and kind of balancing all of that. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like the, some of those points that you made about, and I, the, the analogy of this being essentially the previous way storage was, was a subscription model for, for storage. And what I was thinking this whole time is you're talking about it. The utility is essentially, paying the 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 midstream supplier saying hey you you will provide us gas here and we will pay you extra to make sure we have gas and and mm-hmm. if i understand correctly you were saying just throw rough numbers out there they were paying an extra $5 for that storage component saying okay here's a here's a little something extra to make sure we get first first rights to your gas now it's like, hey, we'll pay you $500. Please make sure we're at the top of your list. And we will do that for the for the next 20 years, as opposed to like, eh, maybe for the few first years and then we'll reevaluate, which is, that is a, it's a, to me, that is a, a marked difference in 
in thought process. So it, it only makes sense yeah. to say we could either pay and, and, and hope that somebody else is going to have that storage for us, or we could do it ourselves and we could have it here right. ready for us to operate. So I think it, right. I think, I think we should all be able to recognize that value there. Yeah. So did you have something else to add on that? Cause I'm about to switch topics. on. No, us. <laughs> no, no, I, th- I think, yeah, no, I, I think it's important to note too, cause you know, the, the tendency that people have when, when hearing about something new too, is it, is it seems a lot more disruptive than it is. And it's not even really, it's not a replacement for any of the existing storage. Uh, there, there's a backstory there that, that briefly, um, I can kind of touch on the, the existing storage as far as geological, you know, salt cavern, uh, depleted reservoir there, there, at time, there was a time that there was a build out in, in this type of infrastructure. And that has not happened in, in nearly 15 years. Uh, the shale revolution brought on, you know, obviously massive, you know, game changing, world changing supply, and and the perception at the time was this this will this will no longer be needed, yeah. you know, when when referring to storage. So um, that's kind of come back around, and some things have changed in addition to that that have revealed a, a different outcome. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that that's kind of where we are. So it's it, you know I almost think of it like like we think of energy resources. You know there are times you need all you can get. Yeah. It's kind of an all of the above, right? Mm-hmm. And so we we kind of think of the existing storage, you know, because there are some there are some storage assets out there. I think are super key. There's some mm-hmm. stuff in the uh, the Gulf Coast area. Um, you know, obviously with import export and just from an energy hub standpoint. Yeah. You know that that geological storage, and if it's geographically advantaged, then it's geographically advantaged, yeah. and and everything that comes with that, right? But there are pockets of the country, and it, and it doesn't put us on an island where it's an outlier. But you know, I I don't see us putting one of these in the Corpus Christi area. Yeah. Pers- let's just yeah. say, right there there are those pockets where we know we probably won't go. But there are also far more pockets to kind of stick with that kind of observation where the geographical, geological storage has geographical limits. And it just is where it is. You know, it's it, it's not on every street corner, you know, kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, being able to put this where you want with within very few limits, you know, the type of facility you would co-locate gas to is typically in the middle of nowhere and there's available land space. So, you know, there's, there's not very many gas fire generation facilities, you know, in the middle of, you know, the downtown square. (laughs) So just think, think of it that way. So with very few limitations or exceptions, you can put this where you want in the capacity you want with the operating conditions you want. And it's important to note too, with geological storage, your, your deliverability of your storage capacity is significantly limited. Hmm. So what I mean by that is if you have a, a 5 billion cubic feet uh, salt cavern, let's just say, uh, uh, you're only going to be able to deploy or deliver about 60% of that. There, there's a con- contamination factor, there's loss, 
there are oper- operational, uh, I hesitate to say flaws, they're just limitations, no. right? It just kind of is what it is. You know, the, these are not debatable type points. You're, you're, you're going to lose a lot of capacity with that. Now, we would not build a, a we probably wouldn't <laughs> uh, build a 5 billion cubic feet gas loop, but the, the capacity needs that are being met from that large facility we can co-locate to those folks, yeah. right? In the capacity they need. Yeah. Not everybody needs every bit of that capacity. Yeah. So it's deliverable storage capacity is a very different thing. And what this is what we like about pipeline infrastructure. You know, my my, my one of my one of my one of the the kind of phrases I like the most from a marketing standpoint is taking all the operational and safety benefits of pipeline infrastructure and applying that to underground hmm. storage, right? Yeah. So you, you get pipeline quality gas in and out of storage. I, I don't like to say 100% just because that sounds perfect, <laughs> but as close to that as is operationally achievable, yeah. you, you have, that's, the, that's the efficiency and deliverability of this system. And it's because we're using pipeline infrastructure. It's what we know about pipeline infrastructure, yeah. right? In, in, the other, in the other applications for it, you know, being transmission, distribution, and so on. Yeah. Well, I, I think that, that that is a really good point that you hit on there. The Basically, the fact that geologic storage and existing storage is geographically constrained. So the idea of gas loop and the ability to take that storage to the end user is it, it opens it up so that that 5 BCF instead of having that in one centralized location, you may have a cumulative close to that and be able to spread it across the 100 or 150 end users and still have the same amount of storage, just it looks different. And now everybody has it when and where they need it. So that if something happens that you can't get that gas out of storage, well, now you don't really have to worry because you've got it spread out. And and one of the things I like about the idea of a distributed energy network, which this enables, is that you have that redundancy. So even if you have 10% of your system go down, you still have 90% up and running. Whereas if you have 10% yep. of, say, your gas storage system go down for, for traditional storage, that 10% may be the one valve you need to actually get access to five BCF. And now, yeah. now you've lost all of it. So it's right. I think it's important to, to think about that and highlight that. So we, we've talked about the why and hopefully at this point, so let's assume I'm a utility. I've got this natural gas gen set sitting somewhere out in the middle of nowhere, all the land I could want. I want to get some gas storage. How would I go about getting a gas loop installed? What are the actual, what are those actual steps? What does it take to, to put this in the ground? Okay. Um, this is a good question. So the commercial process for us, in, in addition to the optionality, right? Um, whether that being that, that we own and operate, it's a direct purchase and so on. We touched on that. But, but in addition to that, the commercial process is, it's actually very simple as well. So 
for for most applications, especially natural gas, you know, a hydrogen evaluation might look a little different. But for for natural gas, the the primary kind of opportunity set for us, um, you know, once we kind of get through the the what it is, what it does, you know, the introduction to it, it's there's there's not a lot of mystery there. People grasp the concept, maybe ask a few questions, you know, typically around compression or system design, and they kind of gain an understanding relatively quickly. You know, and, and a lot of times, even in the first conversation, it becomes site specific, mm-hmm. right? So there, there's some fundamental understanding of what an evaluation looks like, again, being available land footprint, what's the desired storage capacity for their facility. And that's typically, a, it's a volume each time, but a lot of times it's derived from duration. Mm-hmm. So it's a customized duration as well. But once you have the duration, you're essentially backing into what the volume is. Okay. So, and then again, looking at pipe diameter, compression, pipe material, and so on to achieve that most efficient design. So we're already into basically the components of what we call a preliminary estimate. Mm-hmm. And we can kind of step through that, and and we we're we're often exchanging those kind of details by the end of the very first conversation with with a customer, and and then it just gets a little more specific from there. You know, it, it is a uh, a relative, I wouldn't say complex, but it is a a capital intensive project, and so you step through those uh, kind of like stage gates appropriately, but very simple to do kind of a high level preliminary estimate uh just kind of make sure we're in the ballpark and then we proceed from there so it's you know it's a few steps into it before we're engaging with like a third party engineer which we would typically do right yeah uh we we have uh epc partners uh that that we work with that that provide us information and kind of like design support along the way but uh as we get closer to uh, more of a definitive commercial agreement. We would do a feed study, things like that. There, there would be some engineering dollars just kind of as a pass through to to kind of fine tune what that final solution would look like. Uh, but but just that initial engagement alone, it moves relatively quickly, and and you kind of can get on a path of you know how this compares to other options, which they're typically going to evaluate. You know, anyone looking at a solution like this is evaluating all of their options. That's typically turning out very favorably for us. Uh, you know, the comparison is you know how many, you know how many hundred bullet tanks could I put down? You know, kind of a thing or or LNG, and and the economics really honestly aren't even close, mm. um, at least with what we're seeing in the actual evaluations so far, but. Uh, yeah, so it's it's not a real arduous process, and we just kind of go hand in hand along that path, you know, as it gets a little more complex and a little more close mm-hmm. to a more definitive commercial arrangement. So, but but we typically know right away, like whether they know if if they want to own it, which they mm-hmm. typically do. Um, so that's established very quickly. So you know, pretty simple cost plus type model, yeah. and then we're getting into that preliminary estimate. So you're into the dollars and cents of it really quickly. We like that too. Oh, okay. it, it's not difficult to establish what a path forward looks like. You know, it, it's really just digging into what those site specific metrics are, mm-hmm. what their objectives are, you know, and then we're working together to put together the most, basically the most efficient design. When you talk about size and designing these systems, 
what do you see as that that size range for the the smallest that makes sense the largest that you've looked at that you think would make sense and kind of your sweet spot and i realize that's a loaded question because we've talked about duration we've talked about total volume whatever whatever you think makes sense i think either mcf or or when we compare to something like a battery whatever you think makes sense for for discussing sizing yeah well i i'll touch on the battery comparison next but we we do have a pretty good line of sight to this because with with it being a a pipeline construction project you know there's what what i refer to as a minimum viable opportunity right there's there there is such thing as so small in terms of capacity or depending on what the application is right mm-hmm. so on the small end for us would be around 2 million cubic feet okay. of storage capacity uh, we we could go a little below that but it kind of you start to bump into you know hey maybe it would make more sense to throw down a couple of dozen bullet tanks you know something like that just from a cost standpoint so uh, the, the minimum viable opportunity is right around 2 million cubic feet. And then um, the largest system we ha- have an actual commercial evaluation on right now is, is 250 million cubic feet. Now, I've been asked for much larger, like up to a BCF. I've been asked, hey, could you do this? And those conversations are more, uh, you know, poking around like a peaker type mm-hmm. situation, like, you know, bringing a peaker back online or in lieu of uh, a peaker in place of a peaker, you know, that kind of a thing. So that would be more of the outlier. Uh, You know, I would say anything above 250 million cubic feet, uh, you know, it just kind of depends, you know, if, if it's a, I think there are some, I think there's some opportunity around gas trading that could bring in a different commercial path for this. We're not seeing that yet, but I think there's something to that. Um, and, and a gas trader as a utilizing this as a physical asset and, you know, kind of like creating a hub, you know, getting into maybe like a 500 million cubic feet yeah. type example, but for utilities, lar- large is in that, in that 250 million cubic feet range. Cause you know, basically the cyclability of it too, even at those larger capacities, you can completely fill and discharge the system in a day. And a lot of times more than once. So that's pretty broad, right? 2 million cubic feet, 250, 300 million cubic feet. So the sweet spot, I would say it is right in that kind of 50 to a hundred million cubic feet range, kind of right in the middle of that. Um, You know, in even, you know, it's not the largest utilities that have the largest, systems too. It's kind of interesting. There are other operational parameters. What are the limitations? Do they not have access to storage along that system, for example? Uh, You know, so there are a few other factors, you know, that can be unique to each one, not just geographically, but just what, what does the value chain look like, you know, and and those kind of things speak into it too. But yeah, the 50 to hundred million cubic feet, I'd say that is the sweet spot. And we're looking at some data center concepts um, that are kind of right in that range too. Uh, and that's a little bit, I think of an emerging market, you know, you have, you know, it's it, the original focus being utilities, but there, there's kind of an obvious, you know, application for it in, in any high power consumption, you know, type of facility, 
you know, it kind of opening up those additional applications. Yeah. Very interesting. So I think the, what we see, what you've been saying, I think it is clear where this fits right now and the value that it brings to the current market. As we talk about energy transition though, there, there's going to be a large component of storage. There's going to be a large, large leg of natural gas, I would, I would guess. But if we get to a net zero society or if we get to a true zero society, where does gas loop and where does, where does gas loop fit in if we move away from natural gas in a, in a significant way? Yeah, it's it, there's a few different ways, and and you actually touched on this or said this earlier. The way I see gas loop fitting into that landscape is is something that facilitates. It, I mean, it's a it's an infrastructure component, you know, invariably of a much larger concept, right? So it, it really is something that can be utilized to kind of unlock options or a path forward for different things. Uh, a big focus for us. It's, you know, kind of the, the low hanging fruit, easy answer to that is what would we store it in this system, just in terms of system capability. And that's what kind of takes us to hydrogen, renewable gases. You know, it's the same kind of fundamentals that apply. Um, hydrogen is a little bit trickier and that's an understatement. <laughs> uh, so, so for us, you know, to, to touch on that just a little bit, and there's a couple of other things I want to hit here within that transition piece. You know, at the end of the day, you know, a gas loop, after all the evaluation and discussion and site specific stuff and compression and all the things, what you have at the end of the day is an underground pipe circuit. Right. And so what it's made of is massively important. Mm -hmm. And and it's a big it's the lion's share of the cost. Right. The material. Right. So we've been kind of closely, not kind of very closely and very intentionally kind of keeping a handle on uh, emerging pipe material. And we have a few leads with uh, some different emerging technologies. Now this would be the secret sauce, right? An alternative pipe material and what that unlocks because I'm not an engineer. And so I won't go very far down this path, but you know, it's understood that, you know, hydrogen is the literally the smallest molecule. If it can escape something, it will. Yeah. Um, there are issues with embrittlement with carbon steel. Um, and that's another key component of our patent as well. We, we don't specify the pipe material that we would utilize. So that's what gives us optionality with gas or liquid using steel or uh, a reinforced composite or some other uh, non-existent uh, pipe material, something that emerges. So, you know, by way of, you know, some of the new technologies and liner products that are coming out, we have line of sight to a hydrogen application for this Mm -hmm. at at 100% purity. You know, there are still people that say you can't store hydrogen because of its molecular, the volatility, its molecular makeup and so on. So, you know, I'm I'm not ready to shout it from a mountaintop yet that we have unlocked the world's solution to hydrogen storage, but we have we're very close where we're viable pipe material in larger diameter away from kind of cracking that nut, at least having an option for it. Right. Yeah. You know, it doesn't mean it applies to every application, but you know, so the, 
the easy the easy answer is oh we would just store renewable things in this right but i think it kind of goes beyond that too we're we're having lots of conversations around sharing a footprint with solar hmm. you know so even aside from uh, what we're storing in a gas loop as part of the full bro- the broader facility concept like say a microgrid yeah. for example this is what we love about a microgrid concept you know at, at the at the at the fundamental level of that it's you know there's typically a, an arrangement or or sharing of of different uh, energy resources within that right and so being underground uh, a gas loop system there is light duty uh, surface use capability with that and it's very common to consider sharing a footprint with solar. Hmm. Um, we like that. We're not going into the solar business or trying to deploy solar assets, but we do like the idea of making good use, yeah. efficient use of land resources as well. So, um, so that's one thing it can kind of, that's another way it can could facilitate, you know, a, a renewable, you know, penetration concept, but, you know, also, and this might be a little bit of a pivot, but the way I think of it, too, is on the international uh, stage. Um, you know, we, we often think of energy transition compartmentalized into the United States, right? And I don't think it's just personal philosophy that this is really a global initiative. And what does that look like in developing countries, you know? I don't know that 5,000 acres of solar panels in a developing country is the answer, yeah. right? So, but I, I do like microgrid concepts. Uh, I like advancement from on an, it could mean so many different things, right? Because, you know, in a, in a, in a developing country, it's different mm-hmm. than in a first world type international situation, but, you know, energy transition to me is really energy advancement. You know, it's, you know, it's not uncommon to hear someone make the reference. The energy transition has been going on for hundreds of years, you know, going from burning dung to wood. We, we all know that story, but there, there are places that are at a much different place on that spectrum <laughs> of advancement than we are. And, and it's a huge win to move that dial in a direction and let's do what's sensible, yeah. you know, it's uh, and it doesn't necessarily mean you skip over these three steps and go to straight to this one, but it, maybe it does. Yeah. So, but, but that's how I see us fitting into it. I think there's a lot of opportunity for this internationally and especially in countries where there, the infrastructure is not as established, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Central America, I think there's opportunity there um, in, in the hydrogen space in what's happening in Europe. Uh, if we're able to kind of get a little further down the path with that hydrogen application, uh, I think there's a lot of opportunity there because they're they're just further down the path than we are. You know, it's it's the same it's the same fundamentals as our existing uh, or traditional energy uh, value chain. You know, it's production, infrastructure, and end use, right? And hydrogen, just as one example, if it's going to replace as a fuel source. The production's already happening. The end use isn't there. So there's going to be a lot of infrastructure that's required, you know, in any kind of supply and demand imbalance. That's where we live. We, it, it's all the different applications, different types of facilities, different products we store. 
it all kind of boils down to two different types of problems. It's a supply and demand imbalance or it's reliability or it's both. Right. Yeah. So everything kind of fits in those two buckets. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Well, with that, I think now's a good time to transition into those final questions. These are the questions I ask all of my guests. So that first question being, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? Oh man. And I, I don't read much for fun. (laughs) (laughs) So I, uh, the book I'm still reading, I've been working on this one for some time. Uh, it's called the, the cost of discipleship, which is kind of heavy. (laughs) It's a difficult read. I'm a man of faith. And, uh, so outside of the Bible, (laughs) that one is, uh, that one's one that I'm very interested in. Um, and I read it off and on because it's a little bit difficult. It's it's challenging to every fiber of you, uh, and you feel like you get called out yeah. <laughs> every time. So I don't suggest reading it for fun, but that's what I am reading as a person who doesn't read <laughs> a lot for fun. So all right, I will add that one to the list. <laughs> so now, how do we get to net zero as a society? Oh man. Um, does it, does it make sense to really? I I don't know. I mean, I'm all for, uh, I'm all for doing things better and and I'm definitely not pro pollution. Um, but I, I don't know that it's achievable, Hmm. you know, just from, a fundamental needs of the people of this world standpoint. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I don't, I don't soapbox much about, uh, being pro something or anti something, you know, among the, among the mix of, of energy resources out there today. Um, but that's, that's what I wrestle with. You know, if you asked when I, I, I would say, I don't know if we ever will, but I also don't know that that's a, that, that it's a win, you know, Mm -hmm. to get there. But in the, in the sense that we think about it, right. You know, it's, it's, it's often posed as a, will we, or can we, and should we type of thing with a very definitive yes or no type black and white response. It's kind of what it solicits, right. And, and I get that that's kind of human nature, but what, what I wrestle with is whether or not, is this even really, you know, a worthy endeavor to get all the way to zero. Yeah. Right. And what are, what are the implications of that? It's difficult. Yeah. Right. So that's what makes it a great question, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I, th- I think you bring up a, a lot of good points there. One thing that really is a podcast all in itself is, is discussing net zero where Mm -hmm. how how do humans fit into net zero and how does Mm -hmm. net zero fit into the the entire human history narrative and and i think i think the question that you bring up of does it fit in is an important question and i think there's there there's a lot more to that that we can that we can go beyond human history and look at, at longer time scales. But I think it, it's, it is something that, that we have to think about and, 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 and 
as a society make this as as you point out right now it feels like it's black and white at least people's answers are it's always black and white yeah but i don't think who's it, i don't think that we're we're clear on what is black and what is white that is the right. the trouble here that it definitely is all gray because we have not established those baselines and we have not established what 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 the the markers are so i think it's a it's a it is the most philosophical question that i ever ask anybody i think yeah and and there's the human nature piece of it but i think especially as energy professionals we kind of have a responsibility to understand the the fundamentals and and the actual cause and effects mm. on a much more broad level you know than the average person mm. you know it's it's difficult to think that when when i say the average person i mean someone with zero exposure to how energy markets and products and fundamentals and physics yeah. and all that work right you know it's okay that these people exist and don't have that understanding <laughs> it, it's totally fine but but you know it's you know it's and i'm not the first to bring this up of course but it's 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 the second order effects and unintended consequences and the the only if i were to step into just a small space of personal philosophy here which i try to avoid you know it's you know the only quote unquote concern or issue i've had with with the energy transition is the pace of it it's I, it, we've, it, it's not sensible to run as fast as you can into a dark room and you don't know where any of the furniture is mm. and it, Hey, pump the brakes a little, you know, if, if there's a fundamental outcome or answer or solution, everybody's going to agree on it because we're going to see that it works and we're going to see what it creates, what it causes, what it doesn't, what it solves. You know, there, there would be an opportunity to understand those effects on a much broader level. And, and it doesn't look as much like the wild West kind of, and, you know, when, when things are moving too fast, they're moving too fast. You know, it's, you know, that's, that's been my kind of issue with it, but. Yeah. I think that's a, it's an interesting point because I do think there is a, a need to move fast, but mm-hmm. there is a, a level of, of the, the mantra, move fast and break things. I think that if we're moving, as you point out, moving too fast and breaking too many things, then we're going to be in trouble. And, we, and right. we definitely don't want to break the wrong thing. There are certain things that we right. can break on the way and, and fix and everything will be fine. But there yeah we also need to move fast enough so that if there is something breaking i.e the climate if if we're talking about that if that if we're sitting here watching it break and we're saying and we're too busy postulating on how to fix it then we're just going to watch it break and and that is that is where that that is there there is a dichotomy there of what is what is fast enough not too right. fast, not too slow. And yeah, and it's, and I, I agree with you. I think sense of urgency is healthy. Yeah. Sense of haste is, <laughs> yeah. is where we, 
That's yeah. a good way. Are we to doing put donuts it. in the parking lot or <laughs> what's happening? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. Yeah. Well, with that, now you get to ask me a question. Oh man. Okay. So. Okay, so you you host this podcast centered around energy transition solutions. What's the craziest thing that you? Well, maybe that's not the best way to ask it. <laughs> but what's the uh, what's the most interesting or dynamic um, solution you've seen? You know, like for us, we're the other end of that, right? It's relatively simple. It's relatively straightforward. It has some some transition implications. It's not super sexy. <laughs> What, what's kind of the, the, the biggest splash, yeah. let's say, let's not call it, let's not call it crazy. Yeah. Right. But what, what's kind of the thing you've seen that's kind of like the biggest splash in terms of a, a solution or concept or, or so forth. Yeah. That is, it is a, a, a hard question because there are mm. different really exciting technologies in different areas the ones that I can just think of right off of right off of top of my head, there's um, and I, I won't remember all the, the names, but one of them's Revterra and they're developing a, essentially a, a mechanical storage and it then is directly hooked up for EV charging so the mechanical storage allows for cheap, very fast EV charging, which is there's there's a whole lot of other components to that in terms of market and peak load and, and all of those things on why that ends yeah. up being very interesting. And yeah. then you've got uh, V, I think it's Vibu Renewables or in, no, it's Vibu is is the CEO and co-founder. It's in event renewables and they, they do a lot of different things, but they've actually found and patented a, a pyrolysis system methodology that breaks down old tires. So that is this significant, large, dirty challenge that they are finding a way to solve. But that's one of those things that, to me, that's cool. It's very cool, very exciting, but almost a moonshot in the sense that there's still a lot of infrastructure to put in place to do this, and there's there's going to be challenges to overcome to get people to accept the the different ideas there. And then the yeah. last one I'll highlight is is bat- battery chemistry. There's a a company who was working on the um they're working on adding silica to lithium ion cathodes which it which if they were to if they were able to do the entire process you can get up to 10 times the battery capacity so that sounds significant just imagine yeah, if you could cool. increase your your car battery from from 300 miles to 3000 miles or, you know, some right. factor right. of doubling or tripling or quadrupling the, the capacity that's significant. Yeah. Again, that that's a further one that's further down the line, but 
those are the things that get me excited. And when we talk about how you get to net zero, I think it is in all of the above. Can you get there? When I hear about these, I think, you know what? Yeah, maybe we can. Maybe we can do that in my lifetime and do it in a significant way. But there is still the, it's, so those are just some of them. I think everybody who comes on has a, has a spot and a fit and, and even talking about gas loop while it doesn't look sexy, while it doesn't sound new and innovative, I think it is, it is a solution that sometimes that, that part of like, Oh, well, duh, of course we should have been doing that. Like that, those are the cool ones and the exciting ones. Cause then it's like, wait, so now we can actually put this everywhere right now today. Right. And that right. it is immediately solving a challenge. So yep. it may not be the, the sexiest, but that's the one that's going to win games and, and move yeah. the ball forward. Yep. Physical asset with no technology <laughs> risk. I, I love yeah. it. Yeah. I love it. Absolutely. So, well, and I, and I like the, the path forward and additional applications that are out there that can contribute yeah. to this transition, right? Yeah. Cause it's, it is a process and you know, that that's probably the best way to look mm-hmm. at it. You know, when you talk about that sense of urgency versus sense of haste, it's a process. Yeah. Let's embrace that. This is a process, have the appropriate sense of urgency to your point, but yeah, but that's cool. I, I love hearing about new things and there's so many new yeah. things. That's kind of why I asked, you know, I, you have a unique perspective here. And, you know, I'm curious about things and you could spend the whole day like Googling new energy technology stuff. Right. So it's I kind of I kind of pay attention and consume from talking to folks like you. So, well, yeah. Yeah. If anybody else wants to do that, they can just listen to the podcast. Yeah. Well, Brent, thank you for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else you'd like to say? No, I don't think so. I really appreciate you having me on. Really enjoyed it. Well, thank you again. I've enjoyed the conversation. I think everybody will. So thank you. And thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, share with a friend and leave a review telling me what you're enjoying most or what you would like to hear more of. If you want more news and energy-related stories, we have all sorts of energy-related podcasts on OGGN. You can find them by connecting with us with us on LinkedIn or visiting our homepage. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email. That email is joe.batir at OGGN.com. If you don't use email, find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.